Hello and welcome to episode 85 of the Corinne Nidja podcast. I'm your host, Corinne Nidja, and this episode is with Vanessa Cullen. And she is talking about oh, it's this 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 episode was broken up because of tech issues. So you'll notice that you'll notice when we start again. The probably the sound will be slightly different, but it's two it's in two parts. But we've mushed them together to create one episode, and it's such an incredible story. I know I say that every single week, but I fall in love with all of my guests and each week I fall in love with a new guest and this week I'm in love with Vanessa and her story has, it just has so much heartache in it and I think that, you know, often humans, you know, we we love things that move us emotionally and Vanessa's story definitely moved me. She's been through so much in her family, in her childhood, and so much illness and heartache with her, with herself and with her family members, and hearing her and seeing her. Now, I know I keep promising I'm going to have video, but then I have to put makeup on and get my hair nice and not be in a dark studio that's surrounded by Star Wars and Doctor Who figurines because my husband's studio, so... I, I'm figuring it out, but I would like you all to be able to see these beautiful people and see their beautiful faces. So I'm working on it. It's just about figuring out how to get the myself looking decent and getting the studio looking and lit a bit better and all of those things so that it, it's not such a poor quality viewing for people. But yeah, Vanessa, you know, her face, you know, she's so vibrant and bright and healthy looking. And it's so excited and passionate to be sharing her story here. I know it's going to be a really great, I know that you're going to enjoy it, basically. I think that she's gone through so much and it's testament for anyone who has anyone in their lives who, you know, has dealt with emotional eating, with depression, with, you know, weight gain and difficulty struggling with diets and all those kind of things, as well as chronic disease, lactose intolerance, IBS, all of those types of things. That's the, 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 the kind of the least parts of this episode because there's so, so many other difficulties and challenges around that. One of the highlights for me, again, is Vanessa's experience with a paleo and keto, well, slash keto diet that she did for five years and the consequences that that had on her health. Uh, yes, I obviously am super excited always to share those stories because people are so in love with the keto movement at the moment and for many of you who've been listening for a long while, you know the damaging, detrimental impact of a ketogenic diet on our in insides. On the outside, we look super ripped, thinner, thinner than we ever have before, all those things. But the consequences to our organs, to our endothelial cells, to the formation of heart disease is really important to be talked about because it's not being spoken about at the moment. 
very much in the broader community. So I love, well, not that I, not that I want anyone to get sick on a diet, but I, I really like having people come on the show who talk about the detrimental effects of these diets on their health, even though they looked on the outside like they were really nailing their diet and were Instagram ready for any beachside yoga pose, their insides were less happy. So, yes, I love having that on the show and Vanessa is sharing her story with that today as well. So all in all, it's got everything, heartache, recovery, ups and downs, highs and lows. It's it's a really, really, really wonderfully deep and profound healing journey. So it doesn't have a 100% happy ending, but it's got a really, really, it's got so many great pieces to the story that it's it'll, it'll still warm your heart, I'm certain. So, yes, if you haven't yet subscribed, I put out new episodes every Monday, every Monday slash Tuesday. And you can find me at iTunes, Stitcher, app for Android, Spotify. And I think I think that when I Googled myself recently, which I was just having a moment of where am I in the world, I found it in tons of places. So there's lots of people listening to this podcast on all different kinds of apps, which is which is exciting. Yeah. So yes, you can find me anywhere on your podcasty places. So definitely look at that. And if you're want to follow me on social media, you can follow me at Facebook, Instagram. I am on Twitter. I just don't use Twitter. So the stuff from Instagram just goes across there instantly, automatically. So it's not like I write little amazing. I should. I'm going to get better at it one day. But yeah. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'll see you at the end. Bye. Hello and welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me on. I'm so glad to have you on. I've obviously given a little introduction. So if you just want to launch into your story for us, that would be wonderful. Well, in order to give some context for my story, I actually have to go back to the beginning, which um, seems a little trite, but I guess that's what most people do. They go back to, you know, one day I was born and, and so on. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I was um, 10 pounds. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but in my case, I guess in terms of food and health and everything, it really does kind of start from day one for me. So, um, at the age of about two years old, I was diagnosed with nephrotic syndrome, um, which is a kidney disorder. And basically, um, it's complicated, but you excrete too much protein in your urine and um, it leads to all sorts of issues, including like kidney failure. I mean, you know, it's a condition that you can definitely die from. It's really quite serious. So um, I kind of characterized the first 10 years of my life as um, the 10 years where I learned to both explore the world and see its wonder um, and develop a love of learning. But it was also 10 years of dealing with a lot of pain and um, trying to find out sort of where you fit in whilst at the same time, like you're not at school for extended periods because you're in hospital and, and you're not really in control of a situation that you don't really understand with your own body. So um, the first 10 years of my life were punctuated with um, relapses. So it's a condition that you you go along just like a normal person for a while and then you'll have a relapse where the condition will flare up. Um, 
and it's similar, I guess, to most autoimmune type conditions. But whenever I would have a relapse, that would mean that either a trip to the hospital, um, I know some of my stays were like two, three weeks and some of them were just kind of overnighters and that sort of thing. Um, it was uh, treated with steroids, um, so prednisone, um, and it comes with its own ramifications as well, that, that sort of medication. So basically for the first 10 years of my life, I'd be sort of like, a normal sized kid and then I would be this moon faced blown up full of fluid really chubby um, kid and a lot of that would happen quite quickly so it was sort of up and down up and down um, I don't remember a lot of it I just remember sort of you know I've been told I'll get in the car we have to go to the hospital and not really understanding why like I, I didn't like taking the tablets and mum would mix them in with jam and you know try and get me to take them and I didn't enjoy, you know, having to test my urine for protein and weird things like that. And so I just remember those things as a kid kind of going, well, why do I have to do all these things? And why do I feel so awful right now? But the awful sort of became normal in some ways. And you just kind of like, you're a kid, right? What are you going to do? You just live. <laughs> and, you know, they, they take you to get blood tests and you scream and you, you know, have a tantrum and all this sort of stuff. But it, that's just life. Um, so there were a lot of things that I think I went through that are kind of cringe for me as a child now, but at the time it's just it's just everyday life and you just kind of get through it. So um, the other issues with both the treatments and the disease itself was that um, you get very hungry, so you're kind of you're wanting to eat all the time. Um, obviously the um, the steroids themselves plus the disease kind of led to a lot of obesity and bullying. Um, as well as like the time off school and kind of going, oh, why can't I play with my friends? Um, and the steroids also give you a lot of emotional issues as well. So anyone who's been on those drugs as a kid um, or has parented a child who's on that medication knows that um, the anger, the tantrums, the sort of seeing red type of fury is pretty typical with it. Um, and it's so you can have this happy, pleasant child who at times is an absolute horror as well. Um, so I know that I went through a lot of that sort of stuff. And, um, I guess the other thing is that my mum's side of the family is Italian. And so there was a relationship with food there from the very beginning. But food also played a part in my illness because um, I think, like, mum was trying to do the right thing, but she would reward kind of my good behaviour or soothe my upset with food rewards. Um so things like if I went to have a blood test and it was particularly upsetting or if I didn't get too upset, then that might end up with an ice cream afterwards as a reward for that. And um, that probably seemed quite sensible. I don't think she knew that there was any sort of issue. But between that and my associations with food and family and happiness and culture and getting together, um, I think there were some emotional issues around food that began quite early. Yeah, so I guess that was sort of life on and off for like the first 10 years and mum tried to really push um, myself, my sister and my brother into a lot of sport um, and the sport certainly helped with sort of my weight and keeping active and all this sort of stuff. So I'm really glad that she um, really promoted us in swimming and soccer and all sorts of things. Um, and it also, I guess, being sick so often gave me a lot of time to read and um, become quite academic because 
you know, if you if there's not a lot you can do, then you tend to do that. And mum was great at making sure that I didn't get left behind just because I wasn't always at school. So if anything, she kind of made me more advanced and taught me that I had control over that. Like I, I really had control over learning and um, reading and, and being curious and all those sorts of things. So I have a lot to thank her for in that regard as well. Um, yeah, and so I entered permanent remission um, after about 10 years of the disease, which is basically if you don't have a relapse for a long time, then they sort of say, oh, you've probably grown out of it, um, which is good for those of us who have it as children. So how old were you then? See, mum and I don't actually have exact records because I think they just kind of wait and see how long you go without a relapse. But we think that I was sort of technically told that about 10 years old, 10, 11 years old, something like that. Um, we know it was definitely between sort of the ages of 10 and 12. So, yeah. Um, so that was, that was an interesting start for things, basically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah full on. That's a full-on first 10 years. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I wonder, like, about the long-term effects. I mean, I come from a pretty short stature family, but I know that um, the steroids did stump my growth. I'm a little bit shorter than everyone else. And um, certainly from my metabolism seems to have been affected and, I guess, gut health and things like that. And these are things I know now, but... You know, I mean, um, I survived and that was good. (laughs) (laughs) That is good. I'm glad you're here, Vanessa. But, oh, my gosh, it's a very rough start. And for your mum as well. Yeah. I've met a few parents recently talking about children who need – some parents have to give their – administer injections into their children every day for the rest of their life and they're screaming and crying and fighting and and hiding behind the couch. And as a parent, I I, I don't know how you build that love and trust when your kids become frightened of you because every day you're a source of – of terror for for a tiny infant. So I can't, you know, I, I, my heart goes out to you and your family going through those types of things when you're trying to give your kid a medication that makes them feel sick and gives them other complications and that they don't want to take. It's such a challenge. And for all the parents out there who are listening, who are going through that or, you know, who have been through that, I'm giving you a huge hug. And as a mother, I would imagine it would be so hard. And as a child... I know my brother, he had to have biopsies and muscle biopsies and all these different injections and things and tests. And it's just not a very fun thing to go through when you're, like you say, you're trying to experience all the joy and magic and wonder in in your childhood, but your childhood is also laced with this thread of deep sadness and suffering. Yeah, that's it. Um I don't. I know I wasn't an easy child for my parents, both between sort of you know the illness and then the ramifications of um, having to deal with that. Like you say, like the parent, you know, having to mash up pills and hide them in jam and try and force feed your kid, and and having to deal with the the attitude and the screaming and all this sort of stuff. So, um, you know, I mean, my parents both tell me like really terrible stories about um even the hospitals back then like this is sort of the early 1980s and and you know they weren't allowed to stay with the child in the hospital overnight um and you can see like it's really harrowing they certainly um have been deeply affected by it it's quite surprising that they went on to have two more kids because you know i don't know if i would have but um, but they did nonetheless so thankfully they didn't have neurotic syndrome so oh thank goodness 
So what happened from there, Vanessa? What happened from there? Okay. Um, so then I guess sort of the like that's a, that's enough, off. obviously. That's <laughs> enough. <laughs> but, but I know that there's more. So I, yeah, there's, what happened there's there? There's a fair bit more, yeah. Um, so the next 10 years, so that first 10 years I kind of categorise as the, the one of physical pain. And then I guess the next 10 years was a lot of emotional pain. Um, so we had a lot of like family trauma. There was a lot of things going on sort of at home with immediate and extended family. Um, I, I think I was a, I was always an unusual person. Um, through my teens, I didn't really fit in very well. I, I went to a state school that wasn't very supportive of sort of academic achievement and intelligence. And I was creative and academic. Um, and I was still sporty as well. I just didn't really, I just didn't fit in. Like I wasn't like the other kids. And um, so with a lot of stuff going on at home, plus not like not gelling with other people at school, it was pretty hard, like pretty tough time. And I reflect back on it now and I go, mm, I was a pretty depressed kid, but that wasn't really picked up at that point. Um, I was just unusual you know and I was excelling in lots of ways so everyone thought that's great like she's she's good you know um often people who, who really achieve uh people don't really notice kind of what's going on behind that and I think I was a little bit of a victim of that um so yeah I didn't really fit in and um then uh in my late high school years so it was when I was doing my HSC um my sister who's the, the second youngest child she had a AVM, which is a, <clears throat> an arteriovenous malformation, um, which in other words is a brain hemorrhage. Um, yeah, so this was quite sudden. Oh, uh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Your poor family. Yeah, I've been through a lot. Um, yeah, so she went out to play hockey one day. We were both um, really mad hockey players and um, mum and I were going out to watch her play, but she'd gone out with some of her friends earlier. And I just, I had this really terrible feeling when we were driving to the fields. And I don't know, I just said to mum, I feel like something's wrong. I, I just, I don't know, I just felt like this sense of foreboding. And when we got there, um, some of the other girls came running up to us as we got out of the car and they said, oh, quick, quick, come. There's something wrong with Sarah. There's something wrong with Sarah. And we went over to where her team was and she was laying there being, um, uh, being checked by a St. John's ambulance guy. And I don't know how he knew what that the situation was a lot worse than some kid maybe, you know, not eating enough or drinking enough or, or whatever. But he had pretty quickly worked out that this wasn't just a case of a child fainting or whatever. Um, so she was sort of clutching her head and, and, you know, saying that her head was really hurting and she felt nauseous. And he just said, look, I've, we've got to get her to the hospital right away. And I guess mum and I sort of made light of it because we thought, uh, you know, did she get hit by someone playing hockey? And the girls were like, no, no, no. And we thought, well, maybe she didn't eat or drink enough, which wasn't uncommon for her. Um, but the girls were like, no, no, she's eaten what was packed in her lunchbox and all this. And so we just went with what they, what the St. John's ambulance guy said. Um, so he got an ambulance there pretty quickly and um, she got taken straight to the hospital and basically over the next few hours, yeah, we found out she was actually having a brain hemorrhage, which wasn't caused by being hit or anything. Um, an AVM is when you have some veins in your brain that are quite narrow and they can't take the blood flow. 
um, and they can just break. And it's a it's a one in a million thing. You don't know if you've got them. Um, it's just a really bad lottery. So for the next um, 12 months, she had to come back from us thinking that we were going to lose her uh, multiple times through to having to learn how to talk and walk and do everything again. Um, so she was lucky to survive and she's been left with um, some disabilities in short-term memory and um, left side weaknesses and that sort of thing. But um, it was 12 months of, of like absolute hell. I mean, I, I was doing my HSC. We have a younger brother who was still in primary school. Um, my parents were able to stay with Sarah in hospital, um, but I had to kind of look after my brother as well as getting through the HSC myself and, you know, make sure I cook dinner and all this sort of stuff. So, yeah, it was a uh, full on, yeah. Um, and crazily enough, um, 12 months to the day of her having her ABM, she then suffered a stroke as well. Um, so we went through the entire process again, like from thinking we're going to lose her through to her having to learn how to walk and talk and do everything again um, and, you know, get her life back yet again. And we think that the stroke was maybe caused by one of the treatments she had for the ABM, um, stereotactic radiotherapy, but who can say? It was just insane, though, that it was the exact same day 12 months later. That is absolutely yeah. insane. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, you wouldn't read about it. it you it wouldn't read fun. about it. It is, oh, oh, my goodness. I have to start everything from the start after all of that. Yeah. Relearn to speak yeah. and, oh, my goodness. Yep. Yeah, walk, talk, oh. everything. And, and, you know, before that she was in a selective school. She was super bright. She was, you know, so sporting, sportingly gifted. Like there was nothing she couldn't do. And she was a very popular girl, very pretty um, we were kind of opposites. I was sort of the square peg round hole, but she was like, you know, she just fitted in and, and all that sort of stuff. And in a moment, like she lost all of that, everything. Um, and she's done a really good job of rebuilding her life with mum's help. But, you know, it, it really just teaches you how you can have the world and then all of a sudden it's snatched away from you. So, yeah, that was, that was sort of my, I guess, my HSC and then going into early university and, um, I don't think it was much of a surprise that in my early years of uni then I was diagnosed with clinical depression, <laughs> no. given what we've been through. No. Yeah. So, yeah. so um, it's, it's no surprise that in my early years of university I was then um, diagnosed with clinical depression, given everything that we'd been through. So, you know, no surprise there. But um, yeah, I guess with everything that happened with Sarah and um, going from HSC into university, I stopped playing as much sport. Um, and so my weight really started to spiral out of control. I think like I was doing a lot of emotional eating. We had to pause because we had to re-record because of the sound, but let's start again. So if it sounds different, that's because it's a different day, a different time, but we had to cut the interview short and we want to start from here. Yeah, I think what really had happened was that you know, when you're in university, you're studying full time, now working, got an income of your own and coming out of all the food restrictions I'd had as a kid with um, with having neurotic syndrome, like, you know, salt and limiting sort of junk food, um, but also the emotional relationship with food through, um, I guess, 
sort of my parents using it as a reward and a, and a consolation and then the cultural ties with food as well. Um, yeah, in university it was like, well, now I've got an income and I'm free. <laughs> so, so what that meant was, you know, going out to lunch with everyone at university every day and um, uh, getting on the train coming home from uni and getting some Hungry Jacks and, um, you know, just having this sort of almost like an ongoing binge, I guess, because I had the freedom to do that. But at the same time, I was incredibly depressed. I mean, I would I'd catch the train to university and, um, you know, just be deep in depression and suicidal ideation and it was pretty just horrendous. So, you know, I'd find myself at home of an evening or on weekends, um, I'd eat whatever, you know, nutritious food mum had prepared, but then I'd go into my room and, and hoe down an entire block of Cadbury chocolate and that was kind of a, a way of medicating, I guess. Um, and, I mean, that continued for quite some years and I found – you know, studying design at university, uh, I did very well, but again, it's a very subjective thing as well. So there's a lot of emotion tied up in that, that study and I was working full time. I was also doing volunteer work for architectural firms to get experience and basically working myself to the bone. So it was kind of a perfect storm, I guess you'd say. Um, and that that really just continued for quite some time until eventually – I had the strangest experience with a university counsellor. She was fantastic. She was really, really helpful. Um, and I found that we were sort of really getting somewhere and she did actually get me to go and get medication. And I was um, formally diagnosed with clinical depression. But um, it was something more important that she did than, the, than getting me some medication, which was the one day she said to me, you know, when you're feeling really awful, there's a chocolate shop just up the road from the university campus here. She said, you have permission to go up there and to eat anything you like, to, to just binge out, eat anything you like. And strangely enough, there was something about that being given permission to eat whatever I liked that kind of snapped me out of it. And I wonder if that's because I'm a bit of a control freak or something like that. But it was like, it was just like a, you know, the, the, the clouds cleared for a moment and it sounded so counterintuitive that she was telling me, go up there and eat whatever you like and self-medicate, even though that was probably one of my greatest problems. And all of a sudden I didn't want to do that anymore. <laughs> so, yeah, I, was, I never went to that chocolate shop. <laughs> That's so fascinating. So, so when you were deprived and you had all these food restrictions placed on you and all this stuff placed on you. Yeah. Once you got your freedom, you were like, I'm going to eat everything. And then once you were, like, I guess an authority figure was like, Mm. okay, Vanessa, you can eat anything. You're like, all right, now I don't need to eat it. Now now I don't need it anymore. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I have a problem with authority. I don't know. um, I think, so, so, I mean, things didn't totally change overnight, but there was something about her giving me that permission and me never going up there. There was like this um, feeling that I just couldn't, couldn't do that. Like that was sort of giving in and it made me feel like I really need to take control of this now. Um, it's the strangest thing and maybe she or some other psychologist could better explain it. But for some reason I started to think to myself, gosh, you know, like, 
you've been depressed long enough and there's one thing you really learnt from your childhood and from like my sister having the brain hemorrhage and that and, and that's that life is really short, you know, life is fleeting. Um, you hear one day, you've got everything, you go on the next and I thought to myself, so so what am I doing? I mean, if I've been dealt all this considerable, let's just say shit in my life, <laughs> yes. why not turn it into something beneficial rather than sort of sit here doing something that's getting me nowhere. It's just making my life worse and worse. And so then I guess I swapped slowly from sitting on the train to and from university thinking about, you know, how can I possibly end this and how can I get out of this world to, to thinking to myself, well, you know, that's a bit lousy. Get up off your backside and do something about it, you know. Like you only have this short life. You're pretty lucky you're here. Um, what can you do with this? And so that kind of shifted a lot of my thinking. I I was um, I was still playing a bit of hockey and I didn't really know how to um, eat for sport. I mean, I thought that, you know, having an apple pie before playing a couple of games of hockey was a really good way to carb up. <laughs> and, you know, um, but I started to look at things like that and started to educate myself about nutrition and read up on, you know, what might be better for me. And so I've been playing hockey for 16 years, but um, as so often happens, I think, with women's sport, it can get at times, it just depends on the team and the club and stuff, but it can get a little bit bitchy. And I found that that was sort of not helping the whole um, way I was feeling emotionally. I, I sort of felt, well, I'm not fit enough. I've got a lot of body issues here and um, I'm not getting to do what I want to do in the team. And I don't really feel like this is making me happy. Um and a friend actually intervened and said to me, look, you know, I don't think that that sport's for you anymore because it's clearly not making you happy. So why don't you consider sort of, you know, maybe make a shift or something? Um, so my my attitude towards that sport started to change and um, I ended up getting into martial arts. So I went and started jiu-jitsu. Um, the jiu-jitsu led on to Muay Thai as well. So um, I, I really enjoyed that. It was probably the first time I'd played an individual sport and I liked the discipline. Um, I think because I was working on myself a lot around food and, and overcoming the depression and I'd come off the medication by then and, you know, it was all a bit of a self-development time. The martial arts really fit into that quite well. Um, and I developed a nice community, good friends, but it really felt like a family. So it was really supportive during that time. Um, the other thing with the food too that started to shift was that you know, you have to be you have to be very fit to be good at jiu-jitsu and Muay Thai, particularly if you're full contact sparring, which I was, you have to be very fit. And there was a lot of emphasis on the fitness. So that again was leading me more and more to clean up my diet. And for me, what cleaning up my diet meant was that whilst I'd grown up with sort of meat and three veg and mum's Italian cooking like pasta and sauce and stuff, um, the martial arts led me to look at portion sizes um it led me to give up the junk food and um it led me to I guess the slimming approach <laughs> so a lot of vegetable salad and at that time it was like tuna and chicken breasts and you know that sort of thing it was very much like a, a gym type um a, a gym type diet which I mean obviously I've evolved since then but that's where I was at at the time and yeah most people most people start I've talked many times about me doing egg white prawn only diets <laughs> yeah yeah and which like is horrific pancakes. to me now but 
Yeah, but then. Yeah, all that sort of stuff. Um, part of the journey. Yeah, it is. It's part of the journey. And it was it was cleaner. It was certainly a lot cleaner than when I was eating at university. I mean, all the junk food was gone. I stopped with the Maccas and the Hungry Jacks and all that sort of stuff and got back on the low salt. Um, I also, my lactose intolerance, um, which is something that runs in the family, had gotten to the point where I could no longer ignore it as well. So I had to give up dairy. That had to go. And a lot of people I know struggle with that, but I really had no issue because when lactose intolerance gets really, really bad, you don't have a choice. Like it's just the most horrid experience. Um, and I, I wasn't even aware that there was any sort of drugs I could take for that or anything. So I just completely cut it out and never looked back because it revolutionized my life. Um, so that went at the same time. So, so things were good. I was losing weight. Um, I wasn't quite losing weight as fast as I wanted to. And so I was whinging to some friends about <laughs> that. But, you know, it was it was slowly coming on. Poor off, so. everyone's friends, like my friends, everyone's yes. friends have listened to their friends whinge about wanting to lose yeah, weight. Yeah, 100%. It's sad that we can't love it. I, I read this post last night saying, you know, when we're when we're on our deathbed, we're not going to be going, oh, you know, how's my thigh gap looking? You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> am yeah. I super ripped? But all the way through life until then, until your deathbed, you allow yourself, yeah. <laughs> you don't allow yourself any time to be imperfect in any way. <laughs> oh, it's so true. And that's still something I'm really sort of wrestling with. Um, mm. And I, I guess I think it's hard. Yeah. It also depends who you surround yourself with as well. I mean, you know, martial arts and then I was, I was going to the gym and lifting weights and that sort of thing as well. And obviously, you know, when you're surrounded by people who regard the way your body looks and performs as being very important, then yes, they'll listen to you. But at the same time, your internal sense of judgment probably gets more expressed than it would otherwise as well. So um, I don't think anyone was mean to me. I don't think people were judgmental, but I was judging myself. Um, and so that's why I was whinging to my friends. So yeah. And so one friend actually said to me, look, I'm really, funnily enough, actually said to me, look, I am a bit sick of hearing you whinge about this. So he actually challenged me to give up all carbohydrates um, because he said to me, look, you know, you eat a lot of carbs, you eat a lot of bread, you eat a lot of, um, you know, potatoes and pasta and things like that. Why don't you completely give that up? Um, and I thought, well, you know, that's going to be pretty hard. And he said to me, actually, I bet you can't for two weeks. I bet you can't give up carbohydrates. Of course, I said, well, challenge on, <laughs> you know, because I have this issue around control. Um, and so I did. For, for two weeks, I gave up all carbohydrates and immediately dropped a heap of weight, which I know is largely fluid, but I didn't know that then. Um, and that led me on to the paleo diet. Dr. So McDougall's to... crying about you giving up carbs for two weeks. <laughs> I, know, I know, I know, I know. And the worst thing is like, so I became high fat, low carb and – um, that took me through sort of the five years of martial arts and, and um, led me even into some body sculpting as well. Um, and, you know, yeah, you lose a heap of weight, but what no one ever told me was that you end up with like, well, quite often you end up with liver problems. So I ended up with fatty liver disease and um, that was quite funny in a way because I kept getting these blood test results coming back saying um, it basically said suspected mild alcoholism on my blood test results, and I had oh never, oh my god, I never, I'd never drunk in my entire life. So. 
<laughs> so I was like, what is going on here? Um, but at that point, like, I didn't really link it to the diet. I, I had no idea. And it was only as I kind of started to research myself, like, what, what, what are these results? What's going on here? And I started to find out that high fat, low carb is about the worst thing you can do as a person who has suffered from kidney disease in the past because it puts a huge load um, on your kidneys. I mean, you know, people talk about oh being ketogenic, but they don't really understand how the liver and the kidneys are involved in that and the amount of pressure that you put on them. Um, so it was completely the wrong thing for me to be doing, but all I was focused on was the weight loss. Um, and it wasn't really until I got those blood test results and then started to develop some quite severe IBS that um, I really started to look into it further and further and sort of thought to myself, something is very, very wrong here. Like this is not going well. I'm losing the weight, but no, nah, I'm getting too many other warning signals going on as well. Wow. This is such an important, I love having guests like you on the show who have done high fat, low carb for long enough. To, like they've noticed the weight loss. They've had that, you know, we had Gina was on the show talking the uh, same yeah. thing that she, you know, she went paleo and it was great. She was feeling so good with her PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, and just, she was you know, losing weight and all those things. Um, and on the outside, she looked great. And then on the inside, she had her blood results back as well. And she was like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's awful. But people don't realize that I think we've had doctors on the show just saying, you know, we look Instagram worthy you know we, we think we look amazing our bodies look great but in the inside we're moments away from a heart attack you know yeah that's it and I think that most people don't get blood test results before during and after and so they don't they don't even know like they don't realize and I mean, I did it for quite a few years, but because I was still getting blood test results pretty often, that's why I was able to notice the change in my liver function. Like every three months, it was just kind of getting worse and worse. Um, so in some ways, I'm kind of lucky to have had a history of like chronic disease because otherwise, I don't know how long I would have gone on. I mean, I've never been slimmer than I was when I was doing high fat, low carb, but at the same time, it was it was potentially killing me. Like it really was undermining my health. And it might have taken quite a long time for me to see that because you know I mean your kidney function can get really low before you even realize you've got a problem and you know like yes the liver regenerates but how how much damage do you need to do before you realize um so I, I guess I'm quite lucky that it was picked up but um there was also another bit of a catalyst that happened too so there I was I was doing martial arts and and finally you know quite probably the happiest I'd been and with this really nice community around me and everything. And then one day um, at training, we did a sparring session. And after the sparring session, I just tried, I just started crying, like I'm bawling my eyes out for no reason. And I thought, okay, this is kind of odd because I'm kind of used to being kicked and punched and stuff. And when I got home, I went to the bathroom and I was like passing blood. And I mean, like, blood blood and I was like oh my gosh what is going on um so I rang a friend as you do <laughs> instead of going to the hospital you ring a friend and um it <laughs> and it turned out that they were actually at a party with someone who was a nurse and so the friend told the nurse that I was you know I'd been doing martial arts and now I was peeing all this blood and I was freaking out 
And the person told them, tell her to get herself to emergency right away because there's something going on there. Like she's got some sort of internal bleeding, could be bladder or kidneys or something like that. Um, so I did. I went to the local emergency hospital and I told them like what was going on. And they said, look, here's a little specimen jar, go in the bathroom there and fill it up. And I did that and I came back out and it was the funniest thing. The nurse says to me, first of all, she goes to me, is that yours? And I'm like, well, where else did I get it from? I'm like, yes. And then she goes to me, she goes, do you have your period? And I'm like, hello, I'm in my mid-20s, or actually early 30s by that point. I'm like, I think I would know if it was that. And I'm like, no, it's not that. And then she just goes, oh, my gosh, come straight in. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm guessing that's not good. Mm. <laughs> so, um, yeah, they took me in and I went and had a whole lot of scans and stuff and they kept me over in overnight in emergency and they said, you can't go home until the bleeding stops. So just drink lots of water and, you know, we'll, we'll have a chat to you in the morning. So um, the next morning uh, a doctor came to see me and they gave me a report and all the guy said, and he was very young, I guess he was an intern or something like that, all he said to me was, um, you have lots of cysts in your kidneys. And so what we think is that um, you were maybe kicked or something and a cyst um, burst in your kidney and that's what's caused it. Um, and I'm like, okay. He goes, go and see your GP. So as you do, I get home and I get on Google <laughs> and I pull out the letter I've been given and I Google what it says, which is polycystic kidneys. Um, and then like time just comes to an absolute sliding halt because what I came across online was a condition called polycystic kidney disease. Um, and what it said was that that is a condition that is degenerative. There is no treatment nor cure for it. Um, and that at least say half of those who have it by the age of 50 will suffer from kidney failure. And, um, a lot of people die from cardiovascular illness or other, um, sort of conditions, uh, related to it. Cause it's a, it's something that affects your whole body, even though it's called polycystic kidney disease so it's got lots of fun little ramifications as well um oh my gosh and I was just like oh like traumatized in that very moment um I went on the forums I started reading stuff it was absolutely horrific like the things that people were saying there like how they were suffering and what was going on in their lives and um it was just like a field of misery and horror and I did go and see the GP and I didn't really have a usual GP by that stage because I was pretty healthy. Um, but I did go and see a GP and he actually said to me, he goes, um, okay, so you've got this letter. It says you've got polycystic kidneys. He said, have you Googled this yet? I'm like, well, okay, I'll be honest. I'm like, yeah, I have. He goes, oh, well, you know what it means then. Oh. And then he just goes, go see a nephrologist and basically kicked me out. So I went out to the car and I just bawled my eyes out, <laughs> absolutely bawled my eyes out because there was no no sort of counselling or anything. He didn't explain anything else. He just asked me if I'd Googled it and he said to me, well, you know what it means then. Um, oh, so, yeah. <laughs> Talk about bedside, man. I know. Gosh. Oh, full on. Oh, um, my God. 
So, so one of the ramifications of that is that if you have polycystic kidney disease, which I did in fact have, um, you can't do contact sports because the risk you run of um, bursting a cyst is quite high and that can cause kidney failure and all sorts of issues. So after having changed my entire life with martial arts and this new community and a family around me, um, I actually had to go to them and say, well, I've got this condition now. And that was three weeks before my black belt grading. So I trained for five years, <laughs> yeah, to get my black belt. And um, unfortunately, the trainers said, you're too much of a liability. Um, you can't do your black belt grading. If you want to do it, we'll have to write your whole new syllabus that's non-contact. You'll have to wait another six months to a year um, and you'll have to do it again. And oh, like oh. I was crushed. <laughs> I'm crushed for you. That yeah, is just all that know, work. Yeah. Yeah, and it was six months of very intense focus on the black belt grading at that point too. So, like, I had literally busted my backside to get to this grading um, and to get that news sort of three weeks out and just on top of the diagnosis and everything, I just completely had a meltdown. And um, I felt like it was a betrayal by the trainers and the community too that even though I had actually always had polycystic kidney disease, it's it's in your genes. Like it hadn't been passed down in my case. I'm the first. But it had been there this whole time I'd been training and it wasn't until something happened and we knew about it that I became a liability. Um, and even when I did go and see a nephrologist, he wrote me a letter saying, look, she's been doing it for five years. Just let her do the grading. I'm fine with that. You know, it's one more time. Um, but they still said, no, like it's, it's too much of an issue for us. What if your family still us if something happens or whatever? Um, yeah, so I, I walked away from the sport. I continued with Muay Thai for a little bit because my trainer there was much more sympathetic. Um, he was more of the attitude of it's your body, your risk. <laughs> and he was like, if you want to fight still, you can do it just as long as you take responsibility, blah, blah, blah. But I, I just, I, like my heart was broken and I felt like I couldn't really do that anymore. I couldn't take the risk. And watching other people fight and participate still was too heartbreaking like I thought I could stay and train and be part of the community but I just couldn't I couldn't couldn't watch other people doing that stuff and not be able to be involved anymore um so I went to I had a personal trainer at the gym by that time and you know obviously I'm telling him and it's all very heartbreaking um I had toyed with a bit of body sculpting but I found that being so like low carb and starving myself meant that I couldn't run my business because I couldn't think straight so that didn't last very long um but he suggested that maybe I should try a triathlon because he knew I was running a bit by that stage and um I I was I had been a swimmer early in my life and he figured that you know I liked doing spin classes so maybe I could learn to ride a bike um, and so, yeah, triathlon was the next thing. Cause I had to, I had to keep going. Like I had to keep doing something, you know, um, my, my polycystic kidney disease was, it's in quite an early stage. So I'm not really physically affected that much and triathlon was certainly doable. So there was no reason why I couldn't do that. Um, 
I wasn't given any sort of dietary advice or anything at all, except that I went to one dietitian. She looked at my diagnosis and she said, well, I don't know anything about this condition. So I'm just going to treat you like you've got kidney failure. And I actually stood up and walked straight out of the office because I'm like, I'm stage one. I do not have kidney failure. If you don't know the difference, why am I here? (laughs) So yeah, I walked out. Um, But anyway, so I started triathlon and that went really well, but I did still have IBS and that became more and more pronounced the further I tried to run. So I would be doing like track running sessions and I would get like 4K in, I'd be in the bathroom, in and out of the bathroom constantly, like just diarrhea and stomach issues. It was it was really, really bad. Um, and so I kept having to look at my diet and go, well, there must be something wrong here. I'm doing something wrong because my gut is not handling this. Um so I ended up going to yet another dietitian, and this one was a bit better. She knew a, a bit about sort of kidney disease, but she said to me, oh, this must be a FODMAP issue. Um, so the FODMAPs are like the fermentable, um, I don't know what you, quite what you call them, but I guess the sugars or whatever that might be. Yeah. I, you can look it up Fructose, anyway. Fructose, something else. Yeah, it's, it's all those. Oleo, oleosaccharides or something. Mm. <laughs> all those things. I'll put it in. The, I'll put FODMAP link in for info in the show notes yeah 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 so she said to me okay it's got to be that um so she said you need to go on the FODMAP elimination diet um and we'll see how that goes and hopefully that'll help you with the triathlon thing because I was getting quite competitive at triathlon um I was doing really really well and you know I didn't want this standing in my way so I went through the FODMAP diet basically you you cut out like um, onion and garlic, you cut out all legumes, you cut out um, dairy, but I'd already cut that out. You, you basically end up eating white rice and meat, um, like meats of various different forms. And I don't, again, I had a problem with this because I'd never really liked meat, but I ate it because I was told that if I didn't, I would die. Um, and so my preference was fish, which I was okay with. But there I am, I'm eating meat and I'm eating fish and I've cut out the dairy and I've cut out all these other things and she keeps saying to me, well, you keep saying that you keep having symptoms. So clearly you're, you have a sensitivity to every single FODMAP group. But I'm like, this means I have some sort of issue with every single fruit and vegetable that, ha- like, that exists. I'm like, that doesn't make logical sense. <laughs> Because we had eliminated every item one by one and I still kept reacting. Like I still kept having gut issues. This is my, this is what I, but one of the reasons why I love Natalie Woodman is because why would I, I had fructose malabsorption for a long time and you're just like, why would I, come on, why am I allergic to apples? You know, yeah. something else is going on that would make me not be able to eat apples and onion or, you know, yes. apples and so many fruits, fruits which we know are so good for us, which our tongue has the receptors to taste those sh- sugars and love them because they're good for us. Why would we? Why would I not be able to have them and only be able to have, you know, meat and nothing else for the rest of my <laughs> life? It didn't make any sense. So I love like people like Natalie who are about rehealing the gut and t- focusing on healing the gut microbiome because you're just like – I should be able to eat those foods. Absolutely. And I, I 
It just didn't make sense to me because I'd grown up with an Italian diet with loads of garlic and onions and legumes and stuff like that. And it hadn't affected me at that point, only the lactose had. And I thought, why am I suddenly becoming like sensitive to these things I've always eaten? Why am I having so many issues with them? And how can it possibly be when your mother and your grandmother and everyone you've ever met tells you to eat your fruits and vegetables first? Like, I'm just like, isn't that a fundamental thing? So I thought if I'm gonna if I'm supposed to follow this diet for the rest of my life that consists of meat and rice or fish and rice, and yet I'm still getting these issues, then then there's a piece missing. And so I, I stopped going to her and I thought about it and I went, how come we haven't eliminated rice and we haven't eliminated meats like animal proteins? I thought we've gone through this whole elimination process, but there's two things here we haven't taken out. So I decided that it was time to do my own experiment. (laughs) (laughs) So what I did was I brought back all my fruits and vegetables except for garlic and onion and legumes because I thought they're particularly kind of bad. And I thought, but I'm going to take all meat out, all eggs out, so all animal proteins, but I left fish in because I was fairly sure that you die if you don't eat some sort of animal protein. <laughs> like that was that was my theory. And I didn't eliminate rice because I just had this sort of gut instinct or feeling that I, d- I didn't have a problem with rice. I loved rice and it clearly it wasn't an issue. Um, so I started on this, this kind of method of eating and, and made myself my own uh, little guinea pig. And very quickly things started to get a hell of a lot better. Um, so what I noticed was like mood improvements. I, my gut improved, like I stopped having these issues where I was going to the toilet all the time. Um, I felt lighter when I was running as well. Like I just seemed to kind of recover quicker and not have this sort of heavy feeling. I felt more rested. It was really, it was crazy. And I went, oh my gosh, it's the meat. (laughs) And I was really angry at her because that dietitian had never mentioned that. And I've been through all these months and months and months of all this elimination. And it was always the one thing we never took out. It's hard because they only know what they've been taught and what they, you know, not, not what they've, not, that isn't what they only know, but you only know what you know. And obviously she didn't know not to, 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 that the meat would be the issue, but... For so many of us, meat is the issue, as we found out time and time and time and time again. But wow, what a turnaround! Yeah, I was, I was, I was, I was totally stoked <laughs> um, that I finally, like after all this time, found something that would set me free. Because by that point, um, I represented Australia in triathlon in my age group of the World Championships, um, and I could never have done that. Like the thought of me, this you know fat kid who'd been through so many health issues, now had found out she had polycystic kidney disease, overcome depression, was actually wearing an Australian sporting uniform. It seemed like the most unlikely thing to ever happen. (laughs) And to go overseas and to do the world champs, um, like I didn't even care how I went in the race. It was just the fact that I was there was like, oh, it's crazy, you know. That is so incredible. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was was mad. It was one of the definitely the coolest things that's ever happened in my life. Like it was just, yeah. You had so many, like with your sister and then with your polycystic kidneys and missing out by a minute. When you told me that about your 
black belt, I immediately thought about plant-based Gabriel, who was on the show ages ago, but I'll put his episode in, and him talking about how he was basically six months from the end of an an animal agriculture (laughs) degree where his whole life was about how to grow the biggest pieces of meat. And then he's just like, oh, gosh, I'm a vegan now. What the hell? (laughs) But he made, you know, both of you made lemons out of lemonade back to my old name of the podcast you know you really did which is which is such a wonderful wonderful thing because we often get to those devastating setbacks and we think oh my gosh this is the end and then you're in the world championships for as a triathlete that is incredible and he you know he's gone on to do so many incredible things as well making plant-based pet food and you know really helping you know grow plant you know can get people to go vegan and get them to change their farms to a plant you know to vegetable and fruit produce farms instead of pig farms and all those kinds of things and it's just yeah it's incredible it's incredible I love hearing those stories yeah I actually I've said this to a few people that you know what grows the greatest garden is a hell of a lot of compost (laughs) So that's it. I kind of look at it like that. I'm like, I don't, I don't thank anyone that I've gone through so much, like just shit. But it does. You can, you know, if you can take it and direct it, um, you can really grow some really beautiful things out of it. And and I figure, well, what else am I going to do? You know, I could, I could have a pity party twenty four seven, and you know, I still do have pity parties from time to time, but. But, you know, it doesn't get you anywhere. So I might as well try and use it for a good purpose. So, yeah, that's the way I see it. I love that. I love that what grows the greatest garden, a hell of a lot of compost. I think it's a beautiful – and just yesterday I was reading a Joseph Campbell quote. I hope it's a quote. So if it's not, I'm sorry. But he had a book about finding – follow your bliss, you know. Mm. Um, and he said, you know, as he's as he's aged, looking back on that, he said, you know, I should have said, follow your blisters, you know, follow, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> follow the the hardships and the things because the struggle is, as you say, like the pain for me and for you and for every guest on this show, those dives, those darkest, most horrific moments, have created the most beautiful gardens. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, I guess the other thing is too that changing everything um, in triathlon led me to meet my partner, Jason, who was a longtime vegan and he was the one who challenged me to eliminate the fish from my diet. And that was my last piece of my puzzle and that was what sent me vegan. (laughs) And um, that, you know, that's just continued to revolutionise sort of my wellness and everything. And that also led us on to meeting Jenny and Malcolm and learning more about whole food plant-based and no oil, which um, has really helped me with like weight control and that sort of thing. And even though I don't do triathlon anymore, I'm now an ultra trail runner. Um, a lot of that I owe to the fact that, um, you know, eating whole food plant-based has given me a really easy way to control my relationship to food and really simplify it, which is like, um, I guess Andrew Spudfit Taylor sort of really highlighted was that, you know, when you come to whole foods, um, not only does it really make you 
make life easier from an athletic point of view. But if you do have weight issues like I've always had, um, it just kind of makes it a lot simpler in terms of controlling everything. So, you know, that's kind of been the evolution sort of since then in a little nutshell. Um, and I'm still working through my relationship with food, but, you know, it's, yeah, it, it that really just makes things simple, just going. It's just about simple fruit, simple vegetables, uh, rice, beans, which I can now eat, and garlic and onion is fine and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, I'm, I'm achieving incredible things in my ultra trail running, uh, things I never thought I could ever do. So, yeah. <laughs> that is amazing. So it's, I, I guess for many people who listen, their partners aren't vegan, so it's it's wonderful to have someone on the show whose partner is was the catalyst for them going vegan. Were there many struggles or was it did you find it fairly easy? I guess you've eliminated almost everything. So like me, I only had fish and egg whites left. So for me it was pretty easy. I was like egg whites and fish aren't that great. Like I don't crave them ever. No. Um I didn't I didn't find it difficult at all and I didn't transition to like the faux meats and stuff because Jason had been vegan for so long and he he's an incredible athlete and he was an incredible athlete when I met him and it was funny because when he challenged me to give up the fish I was like but but I have to eat fish or something like that. I'm like, because otherwise I'll die. And he goes, hello, look at me. He's like, do I look like I'm dying? And I was, and I was really confronted by that. I thought, no, he really doesn't look like he's dying. Um, and he, he had been through like he'd been at various times raw vegan, but he'd always been pretty much whole food plant-based anyway. He actually now um, eats, I guess, a little more freely than I do in terms of he doesn't struggle with weight issues, so like he might um, have a burger or have a pizza or something that I wouldn't have because I know that if I even look at it, I put on a heap of weight. But um, I guess I just kind of adopted what he was doing and it was already um, my normal way of eating to be very much based around like fruits and vegetables and, and rice because that's like my passion, <laughs> I guess. Um, and I've always been a real foodie anyway, so I do actually understand like um, taste profiles and the quality of food. And I'm very much an advocate for like local food and the quality of food and food security. So we didn't really ever go through the whole junk food vegan phase and it really wasn't hard to switch at all. It just made sense. And it's really funny because like my mum's side of the family, as I said, is Italian. And I look back to how my great-grandparents lived. They grew most of their own vegetables in their backyard. And I was lucky enough to know them for, for quite a part of my life. Um, and I just go, I feel like we're really dumb because, you know, these people, I mean, when, when they passed away, they were in their mid-90s. They went like super healthy and then dead. Um, they didn't degenerate. Like, you know, there wasn't this sort of slow demise or anything. They, they loved each other. They were so full of life and activity. And I go, oh, my gosh, I've had to go all the way around the world and through all sorts of shit and back again to find myself back at pretty much what they ate. (laughs) (laughs) I think all of us have definitely, you know, my kids have been whole food plant-based. They have a little bit of junk food because it's very difficult in our society to avoid it. They haven't experienced it, but all, every guest on my show has come have come a long way and had to come back and go, oh, so sweet potatoes, eh? 
<laughs> so so <laughs> rice so rice and beans really yeah that's it and it's just like it's so simple we thought we were so smart inventing all of these you know industrializing food and, and it is has been you know it has it's we have to just come back to this to this stuff. And I guess now we've learned so much about farming and organic farming, which we didn't which we'd forgotten and lost along the way. Yeah. So unfortunately yeah. we've had to relearn lots of the skills that our ancestors thrived upon years and years ago. A hundred percent. Yeah. And just changing our relationship to food, like where it comes from and, and um being more familiar with it and even understanding things like you know, food miles and, and um, I guess seasonality and things like that. And you just become more aware of that when you go whole food plant-based. And, you know, people say, oh, it's expensive, but for us it's not. I mean, we grow some stuff and other stuff like we'll buy um, generally through co-ops, but otherwise like just green grocers. And, and, you know, we know things like you can get the black spotty bananas really cheap, which we use for smoothies and things like that. And it's just a reconnection with the whole food system. Um, that's come into like what I do in my business, but it's also like it's it's just it's part of my life and I'm, I'm super passionate about it. So. I think that's beautiful because lots of people still, and even myself, you know, I'm still, I can be really ignorant about those things, fuck like food miles, even though I know, I intellectually I've heard it and I understand it, but it, it, it hasn't been, we, we shop at the farmer's market and we shop at the local green grocer. So I'm not, we mostly shop at those places for our, for a whole, for that, for our everything pretty much. But, but still, you know, when you get, if my husband gets coconut sugar, he likes it in his coffee. I don't know where that's from, you know, and we, and we, and, and we don't consciously, look, many of us don't consciously think, okay, well, if, I, if I'm using quinoa, where was it grown? You know, where mm. was this ancient Aztec grain grown? You know, where was, yeah. where was the chia seeds in my smoothie grown or the cacao and who was it ethically sourced and all of those things. Like they're something that I think, Many people are still just scratching the surface on those issues and thinking, okay, if, as, as a vegan, where else does my, where else can my values and my ethics expand? If that makes sense. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of. So when I when I became a vegan, I I, I guess because I came through it to it through health first, it. The, the ethics side of things came along later and I do believe in, you know, the, the ethics around sort of animals and stuff like that. But really I guess what's at the core of driving it for me though is that having been through everything I've been through and my family's been through, I just think, you know, your health is so critical. It's the number one thing and you owe it to yourself and the environment to access as much information as you possibly can, like to really dig and look at scientific information and find out the truth. Um, we don't need to eat animals. Like it's just not necessary. So I don't know, like, you know, it's, it is a choice. It's an option. But also, I mean, if we're going to put ourselves first, our wellness first, and I guess speaking as an athlete who spends a lot of time running in the bush and in touch with nature, we and the world in which we live are not separate things. Like we are very much one and the same. And so I wouldn't say I have all the answers. This is an ongoing process. It's an evolution. But I think that if we're going to say, okay, we're plant-based and we really care about our health, then we need to care about 
the rest of the environment too and other like fellow human beings and the whole system. So, for example, I mean, you know, if we're polluting our waterways but we're ingesting that water, then, okay, it's very nice to go and buy an expensive filter but not everybody in the world has access to that. So I kind of feel like our responsibility for our own health extends outwards. You know, we know that human beings and communities and families um are healthier when the whole, like the collective is healthier, not just the individual. So I, I, I think that's kind of where my activism or my um, sense of energy towards like telling everyone about it comes from is that I'm like, I love you all and I love this planet. And, you know, <laughs> so, you know, because that's come out of me developing more self-love as well. And, um, I struggle with the world in which we live. Like it still plunges me back into sort of depressive moods at times and whatnot because it's so contrary to my idealistic hopes and dreams for where things will go Um, and and the changes I've seen in my own life. But I figure whilst I've got the energy to, to speak, well, I should, and I can just keep informing myself and hoping to inform others without shoving it down their throats. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, oh, well, I do, I do, I completely agree with what you're saying. And I think for me, and it, it seems, I think people often like dust it off when I say it and it sounds like woo-woo, nothing. <laughs> but for me, I think that the more, what I always say about health coaching and why I, because often people, often, you know, within the vegan community, there's just, you know, as in the human community, let's face it, there are, everyone has differing beliefs about what the, and obviously vegan is about if, if, if an ethical stance about not wanting to participate in the exploitation and suffering of, of, of animals. Which which I am, but I was like you, I started, I, I came here from health and so often people think, oh, well, you know, it's more noble to have come for, to come from the animals or whatever, whatever. But I, 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 but for me, I wouldn't have found it without coming into it from a health place. And so I still think that there's, it, it's equally important. Whatever, if it's for the planet, if it's for the animals, if it's for from health perspective. And now I value them pretty much equally. Although for me, this is what my point is: if my health is in the bin because I'm eating junk food, vegan food, or I'm eating high fat foods, or if I'm if I was eating non-vegan foods, I can't, I'm, once my health is gone, I can't be a good voice for the animals. I can't be a good voice for the, for the planet. I can't be a good activist in any way. I can't, I'm not a supportive friend. I'm not a good partner. I'm not a good parent. If my health is gone, all the pieces of the puzzle fall to pieces. And so I always think that for me, help this podcast and raising the awareness of what a whole food plant-based diet can do, it helps all the areas. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Because if people feel good, they feel well, they feel joyful and happy because they don't aren't shitting their, themselves constantly yeah. and constipated yeah. <laughs> and tired and yeah, obese, right. th- those people feel better and they do better and they contribute more to their communities and to the, they, they do more volunteer because they have more energy. You know, they do more, they connect more with nature, they go out more, they enjoy life more and that ripple effect of how they show up in the world touches everything that they meet throughout the day in a positive way most of the time. So I I agree with you. I think that health is so important, which is why 
you know, I love the work of Jenny and Malcolm, as you mentioned. Hi, Jenny and Elizabeth and Tony and all in Lucy Stegley and Helene Rocks and all the people in Australia because we, we're we're in Australia. Yes. Who are doing this Rich work? Wall, if we throw it out well, there too. <laughs> obviously, if I wanted to go to the states, uh, you know, I'm fan, I'm a fangirl for Rich Roll and for all the people, you know, plant, all the people over there who are doing incredible things. Dr. Campbell, Dr. Gregor, Dr. McDougall, all those people. But all those people, and that's why it's so important for us to be, even if we have some differences about how many nuts to have or how many, yeah. you know, seeds yeah. to have, it's all about promoting a joyful, cruelty-free, compassionate, optimal a diet that's optimal for human health. And I think that that is optimal for the planet. And it, it, I love promoting everyone because I think that everyone has a different they're going to reach different people and their ripple their ripple is going to touch different people's lives and which is why I love the work that I do but I love the work having guests like yourself who are passionate and talking about you know food miles and all these different things that are new concepts for some people or people like myself who are just aware of it but have a lot further that I can go yeah 100% yeah you're right like if you don't have your cup full then you can't give to others and you we are all by keeping ourselves as well as possible dispelling the myths around plant-based and vegan diets and that's the best we can be is to be um you know to lead by example and show that we're healthy because I mean I made my own mistakes I I turned into you know this crazy passionate person who wanted to force my family to change overnight and go whole food plant-based and all this Yes, stuff. And hands I'm up, who hasn't like, done that? <laughs> yeah, you go through this horrible time where you just lecture everyone and you turn into a right hell. But, um, you know, I, I, I still I still push it a little bit. But, but, uh, but I think, yeah, I, definitely I've seen better results in just um, walking the talk. And now um, through my business as well, um, so we design uh, fit-outs of restaurants and offices and, and shops and stuff like that, but we often get asked to give uh, restaurants advice on, on their menus as well. And what I've found is that more and more people in business are getting interested in the plant-based movement because there's a business case to be made too. Um, so I'm lucky enough that not only can I now show from an athletic point of view and someone who continues to battle chronic disease, um, but also from the business side of it, I'm being invited to, you know, speak about or, or contribute to businesses changing to adopt more um, special dietary constraint options and, and things like, you know, whole food plant-based or, or vegan meals and adding those to their menus. And it's a much easier sell when I can give them a business case for it so I can show them actual data like I've got numbers here about the improvements that they'll see to their business if they offer some options in this regard and then you know then you can talk to them about their environmental and social impact as well and and so that's part of that kind of leading by example is that you can help other people who are wrestling with disease or their own health um, through showing them the example and then when they want when they ask you for information giving them proper information rather than you know uh, I guess harassing their emotions or you know making them feel bad and then you know the world is just getting more and more interested in this and yeah okay it might be a bit of a trend but hey let's run with it right? <laughs> like, you know no, no one loses here <laughs> so, no one loses it's a win-win-win yeah that's right exactly um yeah so I guess 
I guess that's sort of my thing at the moment is it's becoming, it's kind of coming full circle. That is so awesome. What I wanted to, before we hang out, because Ranjit is going to kill me because we've been talking longer and I've moved my appointment to 11.30. (laughs) What I was going to say is, has it helped improve your polycystic kidneys or not at all? Is that just not, is that not possible because of the genetic side of things or it has or it hasn't? I don't know. Okay. I'm um, curious. Yeah, well, hmm, it's a funny one because no one has ever studied it. So um, I would be an experiment of one with no control, <laughs> really. It's So we can't say. Look, I mean, n- nobody has looked into the interactions between diet and the condition at all. Um, but what I do know is this. If you have polycystic kidney disease or any degenerative condition that is um, like, you know, kidney or liver or lung or whatever, anything you can get a transplant for, what you want ideally is to get to that point where you need a transplant because of the genetic side of the disease. So not anything you've done through lifestyle factors, but just the fact that it's a degenerative condition. If it gets to the point where I need a transplant, The best way to go about that is to be top of the list. And the way to be top of the list is to be as healthy as you possibly can be. So there are studies out there at the moment, um, and I'm part of one that's looking at hydration as a treatment for the disease. And so it looks like the evidence, the evidence is coming in and it looks like if we drink a lot of water, we can actually slow the progression of the disease. I mean, water. Crikey, like it's not a drug, it's water. <laughs> but it makes yeah. complete sense because the kidneys, you know, they need a lot of that's water. What they do. That's what they do, exactly. So, you know, if that's reducing the pressure on them or it's making their life easier or whatever it is. Um, so I can't say that uh, that being vegan or whole food plant-based is, is contributing to keeping my decline at bay or anything like that. But look, I mean, if all my other results can be as good as they possibly can be, if I can be active and happy within myself, if I can keep my weight down, um, a lot of people with PKD have cardiovascular disease that comes on very early. I can probably, or at least to a a considerable extent, keep that at bay. So I'm just keeping myself in as best a possible condition as I can. And that's all you can do. Like you can only empower yourself with the things that you can control. And again, this comes back to my control issues. (laughs) (laughs) I figure, damn it, if I can control this, then I'm going to, I'm going to do that. You know, like. So with your blood test results, Mm. And your fatty liver and all of those things. How has that changed since you've gone whole food plant-based? The fatty liver disease, um, all signs of that disappeared within 18 months of changing over to um, being vegan. And then I guess I went from that transition to whole food plant-based more as my emphasis and now to no oil as well. But, um, yeah, so it slowly disappeared, which was awesome. (laughs) So I no longer get those really embarrassing blood test results come back. Um, I still have issues with ferritin. Um, That's been a problem like way back, even when I was eating bucket loads of meat, I always had problems with ferritin. So it looks like I don't absorb iron very well. So I have to get infusions every six months. But 
that hasn't gotten neither worse nor better um, ever since. So we think that that's related to something else. We don't really know, but it's certainly not dietary. Um, apart from that, I don't I, like the only supplement I take is B12, and I don't have any issues with anything else that comes up in blood work or urine work in my case. Um, yeah, and my kidney function stays really good. Um, cardiovascular wise, yeah, everything's really good. So I've really. It's funny because. Um, a couple of times when I've when I have gone to see a doctor or whatever, um, you know, I had a bit of contact asthma there for a while because I was in a place that had a uh, bushfire going on, and I got a bit of contact asthma. And I, I saw the doctor, and they said to me, "You're the healthiest sick person we've seen in quite some time," <laughs> because they look at my records, they go, "Oh my gosh, you got polycystic kidney disease," you know, and they go, "But you're so damn healthy," and I'm like, "Winning!" <laughs> Yay! That is. Yeah. So such good news. I love that. Okay, so before we go, what would be your three biggest tips for anyone who's considering taking on this lifestyle? Okay, well, number one is if you have good health or you have reasonable health or, you know, you've got a chronic disease that isn't at end stage or whatever life you've got left in you, don't take it for granted. Mm. You know, I mean, I didn't ask for nephrotic syndrome. I didn't ask for... Polycystic kidney disease, I didn't ask for depression, every other thing that's going on. Um, and my sister didn't ask to have a brain hemorrhage. And, you know, um, it makes me really sad when I see people waste their good fortune. And I know that I can say that till the cows come home and nobody's going to really listen to it because you have to experience it to know how valuable your health and well-being are. But seriously, you have nothing if you don't have that. So I just think, you know, if you are looking at, like even if you're looking to just increase your fruit and vegetable intake and just eat more healthy stuff that actually has vitamins and vibrancy in it gosh just do it like you know no amount of things that you're going to miss will you miss like you're not going to miss I don't know oily disgusting meaty food whatever you're not going to miss that as much as you're going to miss your health later on and you know, so I just, I cry out to people. I'm like, don't waste it. You don't know how good you've got it. Um, so that would be it. And then I guess the other things are, you know, really fight for your right to information. Um, you are your best advocate and, you know, there's information and then there's information. So I, I get really annoyed when people just read stuff on the internet and they think, oh, you know, that's gospel truth and this this fad diet says this and this fad diet says that. And I know that scientific literature is really hard to read, um, but try, just try. Because often when you read scientific literature, there's a little bit at the start that's a little summary and the summary is generally quite easy to understand. And that will usually get to the main facts about whatever study it's been. And the other thing that you can Skip very easily check. to the conclusion check. as well. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, normal, right. that's exactly. normally pretty good. Yeah, and also just check who paid for it. Yes. <laughs> so yes. Yeah, because, I mean, even when you think, oh, this is good scientific literature, but then you find out it was, you know, sponsored by, you know, the egg industry or something. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, that sort of stuff. Um so I think you need to be sceptical. Uh, you need to fight for your information. Um, 
And, you know, like you need to just not be put down by other people thinking that you're crazy or, or whatever. You know, join join whole food plant-based communities or just talk to other people who are whole food plant-based. I mean, we're not all crazy, insane vegans, you know, like some people are painted to be. Um, you can get really good support and just normal, healthy, friendly passionate, happy people <laughs> who have family barbecues and do normal things. <laughs> yes. Community is so important. I love those. So don't take life for granted, which I wholeheartedly agree with. Fight for your right for information and check who paid for the research, which is super, super important and valuable. And yeah. don't be deterred by the detractors, I guess, the people who want to. Yeah, detractors, piss takers, whatever. Yeah. I mean, the but problem bacon is bacon usually... people, you know. Yeah, the bacon <laughs> people. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I kind of, I'm, I'm caught somewhere between laughing it off and thinking it's not me who has an issue here, you do. Like, why, why did this touch, why does, why does what I eat touch you so much? Like, why are you so offended by that? Like, is there something going on for you there? Like, I kind of, that's, that's my take on it is that I feel like it's, it's touched something within them that's hurting and I might not be able to get at that, but hopefully one day they will, um, hopefully sooner than later before, you know, before their health goes down the plug holes. <laughs> I think I think it's probably their conscience because, you know, it, it does. Our way of eating is at every meal. When you're with someone who doesn't eat this way at every meal, it is a unspoken or spoken reminder that the way that they eat and what they and that they're paying for suffering for their taste buds. Yeah, but I'm sympathetic. I mean, you know, I wasn't always whole food plant-based either. I mean, you know, when we when I ate meat, I didn't know any different. Neither do they. Neither does anyone else. So I'm sympathetic, but I think if you're really taking the piss or getting really you know, angry about it, then you maybe need to look at where that's coming from. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And do you, do you have an Instagram or a social media that people can follow yes. so they can look at you running? I'm doing this backwards today because yeah, that's, okay. <laughs> that's just the way it is. Um, yeah. Yes, where can people follow you and find out more about you? Yeah, so um, on Instagram I'm – I'm at more than PKD. So it's more than PKD. Um, I can send you through these as notes as well. On Facebook, you'll also find me as at more than PKD or just Vanessa Cullen. There's two separate accounts. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that's probably the best couple of places on, on LinkedIn, but that's kind of more from the professional side of it. And you'll just find me under my own name. But uh, yeah, if you Google me, you'll probably find me. So yeah. yeah. Awesome. Hello, <laughs> we would love to find you. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Your story is really inspirational to me because I like running and now I'm going to be ha hassling you about ultra running after this interview because I thought people might get bored of me talking about ultra running and <laughs> Yeah, How you yeah. squeeze it well, into your life? Because yeah. <laughs> that's it's, what I would love I'm very to. happy to talk about it forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. But it was lovely talking to you and hearing your story. And I think so many people who have been, you know, in this weight loss journey or in a health journey can benefit from your experience trying both and trying both for a significant amount of time. You know, yeah. trying yes. lo yeah. low carb, high fat, and then how long have you been whole food plant based for? Uh, I think it's about four or five years now. Yeah, so yeah. about an equal I mean, amount of time. Vegan. Yeah. Yeah. 
So it was, yeah, it was about four or five years since I made the transition to get rid of the fish, which was the last thing to go. And the high fat, low carb was quite a few years as well. So yeah, I gave them both a really good go. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I think everyone's going to love hearing that and, you know, we can all pass it on to our family and friends who are trying and say, what about your livers (laughs) when we're not, but but in a loving, (laughs) non-aggressive preachy way yeah yeah just maybe prompt them to go and get a some blood, blood work done every three months yeah mm, yeah it's a great idea i love that tip in here actually thank you so much and i will look forward to, to hounding you on messenger about this okay. <laughs> no worries <laughs> all right thanks for having me <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you so much, Vanessa, for coming on the show. I absolutely loved having you. Your story is incredible. If you have any comments or questions or queries, please leave a friendly comment in the show notes or on this thread on Facebook or wherever you found the episode today, if it was on Instagram. I would love to hear from you. And if you have your own recovery story, please, please, please message me. I I'm always so grateful to hear from anyone who wants to come on the show or who wants to share their story with me. It is an absolute honour. So if you have a story or you have a friend who has a story, hit me up because I want to share that story with all of the people out there who want to listen and learn more about healing chronic disease and a whole food, low-fat, whole food, plant-based diet. So thank you all for listening and supporting this podcast and sharing it on social media or with your family and friends. It makes such a difference and means so much to me. So yeah, I am eternally grateful and I'll see you all next week.